So I've got the 2013 Ground Reserve Cabernet Franc. Oh. Uh, yeah, this, uh, well, as, as you might be aware, uh, Caitlin, my wife, is a member of the, of the wine club. I know. Uh, I so it. I think the old, the only wine club we're a member of, I'm pretty sure. Uh, really? Yeah. Uh, I'm flattered. You should be. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, but I, I said, uh, she was like, I want to join the wine club. And I was like, well, if you're going to join anyone's wine club, there are very few people. Uh, I mean, we buy lots of wine from lots of wineries. It's not as if we don't do that, but I, I know. My, wine clubs to me have always been a, a little bit of one of those things where I'm like, well, you know, what exact, I just like to control what I what we buy right. uh, is what it comes down to. But I was like, the good news is I'm like, if you're joining Leah's club, she hasn't made a wine that I don't love yet. So we're good. Like it might not be exactly the wines I would have purchased in a given moment, but we will find a time. So do you want to just start before we, we get any further into this with a little bit about how you got into wine? Because I one of the reasons I think you and I uh, have connected over the years is that, you know, your, your trajectory into the wine industry is, I don't know, something that I feel like I, I have a degree of, I mean, I have a great deal of respect for, but also feels feels familiar in some sense to me. Yeah, but before I say anything, I want one of those t-shirts. Okay, we will arrange that. That's doable. That's a cool shirt. I love it. Good job. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's see. So how did I get into the business? Yeah, more or less. How did, I guess, how did you get into the wine business and then what made you decide to open a winery? Okay. So I got into the wine business first. Um, I grew up in Washington, D.C., right up in the, in the um, suburbs of the metro D.C. area. Um, and I was at a think tank. Um, it was the 90s when all the dot-com era stuff was like really crazy. And um, it, was a, it was a fun time to be coming of age, if you will, in my 20s. But... Um, I just wasn't, I didn't feel any, any interest in any of the work that I was doing over the years. Like, and especially at this, even though it was a corporate think tank that was really trendy to, to be there, like, um, it was very difficult to get a job at this particular place. And we were a few blocks from the white house. And it was one of those places where you didn't want to be the first person to, um, you didn't want to be the last person to arrive in the morning and you didn't want to be the first person to leave, but they also like work hard, play hard kind of concept. I mean, they mm -hmm. flew us when we made our incentive trips to like Paris and to the Virgin Islands and we would get Louis Vuitton bags. It was the nineties. Like they would throw all kinds of like goodies at us all the time. So in, in a sense, it was a fun time to be at a place like that, but I was also just, I had my midlife crisis at 26. Like I was hitting my head on the table at my desk every day. just like, there's gotta be more to life than this. I don't care about supply chain. I worked with a working council for chief information officers. It, it sounds very dry. It kind of was, but it was very cool and hip at the same time. And um, I just I had a little crisis. And in the middle of a, an interview for a promotion, I started to cry, which was so uncharacteristic of me. I was presenting research on supply chain and um, with syndicated research and I started to cry and the woman's like, I don't think you want this job. And I was like, I don't, I don't want this job. <laughs> and you know, most companies would be like, all right, well, there's the door, good luck. Um, but instead she, it was an executive, she hired me as her personal assistant um, and she just saw something in me. And the next thing I knew I was like getting like to do these really amazing things. And I got introduced to wine in a different way than what I was used to. So even though I grew up with wine, it was never something that I thought of as a career path. 
in fact, I don't think I even really fully understood how people got to wine. Like I just, I didn't know about the three tier system. I just, okay, you go to a store and you buy wine. Like I didn't have any real sophisticated knowledge about where wine came from other than, I mean, to get to the, to get to me at a restaurant. I didn't know there were sommeliers. Like I didn't pay attention to that. Um, and so I, um, through this woman, I got exposed to really fine dining. Um, my parents, we, we would go to nice restaurants every now and again, of course, but like, this was just very different. It was very fast paced. And, um, I told her, I gave her two weeks notice to manage a wine shop in DuPont circle. And she was like, good, good, go do it. And she was really encouraging. And so this brilliant woman, by the way. So that's what, it, what happened. I, um, I managed a little wine shop in DuPont circle, um, right around nine 11 and experienced nine 11 from the standpoint of being stranded in DC at a wine shop when it was all going down. It was crazy. Um, and lots of things led me to different directions, but, it, um, I had, I had fast forwarded a couple of years and ended up um, working for a distributor in Washington, DC and selling to restaurants and retail. And it was there that um, I had no idea there was an incentive going on for, I'm giving a long backstory, but this is a salon. So <laughs> Go for it. it's different than a class, right? Yeah. Everyone uh, has a class, hopefully. So they're good. Yeah. Yeah. But, but basically I, um, I didn't know there was this incentive from Domain Druin, Oregon. I was selling DDO and I just happened to have the right accounts. I was 80% restaurant accounts and embassies as well. The French embassy was one of my accounts. That was easy to sell French wine to. Um, <laughs> and before I knew it, um, well, DDO, uh, the Domain Druin, Oregon, they were having an incentive program and I nailed it. They, out of the United States, they invited two people, the top salespeople in the country to be their silver bullet for a thing called Pinot Camp. And so I got one of the, one of the slots. I didn't even know what Pinot Camp was, which was so funny, but I was like, sure, I'll go. And that was June of 2004. And so they flew me out with my coworker, Lucien, Lucien and um, we got to stay at the Petite Maison, which is where Veronique Drouin and her family stays when they come out to Oregon. And it's this very, very like plain little like cottage. It's, the, it's like four rooms. It's very simple. Um, you would think like this family from Burgundy, this history, like they'd have like a little small, you know, chateau or something there. No, it was a very, very, very basic little cottage. Um, it tells you a lot about who they are as people, not pretentious at all and it was beautiful and it was there's a giant cherry tree that was just full of ripe cherries and i was just plucking these char cherries thinking like i could get used to this place um and after pinot camp i was converted and the whole thing about pinot camp is it's an industry event they expect you to go back to your market and then be like proselytize pinot noir oregon pinot noir to your market and um unfortunately instead of being a disciple out in DC, I found a job right away to come back to Oregon. So by October, a couple months later, I was, um, Steve Olstek, who was then the president at Erath Vineyards, and this is before St. Michelle, they were, this is when it was still Dickie Erath. Um, they flew me out and I became their national salesperson. And the irony of it all is that my dad dropped me off at the airport to go to Pinot Camp and my dad's an Oregonian and I hadn't gone, I hadn't been to Oregon because my dad's parents passed before I was born. So he just kind of, we did everything with my mom's family 
And um, it was my first time going to Oregon. And my dad said to my mom after they dropped me off at the airport, she's not coming back. Hmm. So like he knew before I even stepped on an airplane that I was going to fall in love with Oregon and that would be it. Um, and that's my dad's a psychic, I guess, but he was right. So yeah, a couple months later I moved to Dundee and that's where it all started. And, um, and then when Dick E. wrestled to St. Michelle, um, I was sent up to Seattle and worked at uh, the Chateau in Woodinville and I helped transition Erath into their portfolio. And they're very careful and cautious about that for obvious reasons. Um, but, you know, I, I was there and I worked with all of their, what they consider their luxury products. And that was a real major learning experience. And I'm telling all this backstory because I don't think if I had, if I didn't have that level of experience, I don't know if I would have stepped into a seller because I learned how to sell market. I learned every, I learned how to do everything in the wine business this, thus far besides make the wine and grow the grapes. So I was halfway there mm -hmm. and on a major level, I got to work with the Antonori family. I helped launch Colsolare. I got to do some really cool things. Um, and they say, Michelle, like, anyways, long story short, I, I missed Oregon. I wanted to go back to Oregon. So I worked for David Adelsheim. And I moved back to Oregon, was his director of communications. And this is where building up to how I ended up in the cellar. I had another crisis again. I was sitting at my desk getting in. I was getting ready to have a review with David. I'd been there for over a year and um, I was going into my review. And I, once again, I broke into tears. Like, what is, what's up with this? Like when I, I guess that's just when you know, you know, and you can't fake it. And I would be a terrible poker player. <laughs> so I was sitting across from David. Um, and I just, yeah, I was just like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I hate marketing. Like I basically is like, I hate doing sales and marketing. I, I, I respect you too much to not give you everything you deserve. And, um, and it was just like, I want to work in the cellar. And he was like, well then go do it. <laughs> He's like, let me know how I can help. <laughs> and that's what I love about the Oregon wine industry. It was really amazing. Like he, was totally cool about it. He gave me a whole severance package. Like I was laid off kind of thing, but, um, instead he built it up so that I wouldn't just, you know, crash and burn, but he's like immediately go before you won't do it. And I was, you know, in my early thirties, not married. I went from making a very significant income to making an hourly. If I was lucky, you know, I had to get the job. I had to get the work. And luckily I landed at anime vineyards because I was friends with Thomas Hausman. And he gave me the crappiest shift because I think he was testing me. And it was like, I was there at five in the morning. Um, and it was, it was good on many levels. It was really good on many levels. But that's where I got to take care of the Larry, which is his white Pinot Noir. And so I managed the fermentations in those punchins, which are large volume uh, barrels for those of you who are unfamiliar. And um, it was wonderful because it was quiet in the morning and I, I could just do my thing, do my work. And I had a lot of aha moments. And so that kind of, I, and after that, I enrolled in the local winemaking program, which is run through Chemeketa College. But it's the Northwest Viticulture Center. And there's a lot of research um, availability through Oregon State. So we have like state-of-the-art labs. I mean, the labs were incredible. We got to do some like amazing plating of like microbes and it was really, really state-of-the-art. And so I, I did their two-year enology program because I had all the prerequisites, all the chemistry and the biochemistry. And I had a nutrition degree too. So I had a lot of the science already. 
And, um, and I did that. And, and in my second year of school, that's when I um, hooked up with Drew Voigt at, he was the winemaker at Shea Wine Cellars at the time. And he's like, listen, I'm here by myself. I usually hire two interns. I'll give you one of the intern position, but why don't you come in in June and help me do all the blending trials and get ready for bottling. And then you'll learn a little bit more. And then you can be him. What that meant is like, he basically made me wash, you know, hundreds of barrels. So he didn't have to, <laughs> which, which is important because the thing is when you see on a winemaker's resume, if it looks like I've done like 10 harvests, you don't harvest. You're really just fulfilling work orders. You're not making any decisions you're learning, but to have a one-on-one -on -one with a winemaker where they like, no, come on board. I'm going to, I'm going to teach you. That's rare. And so I jumped at that. And so Drew Voigt has been my mentor and I worked for him for two years in the cellar. Yeah. And so just, just as a, a brief inter, interlude or my own thing here, uh, for those of you who aren't super familiar with, uh, with Oregon Pinot Noir, which I guess probably most of you are because most of you are nearby or otherwise inclined, but um, we're talking about in, certainly in Erath and Adelsheim, two of the, you know, very, very early iconic players. And with Drew was still at Shea the whole time. This was before Harper Voigt, I assume. It was when he, I helped, so I was with him when he launched Harper Voigt, I helped him. I could, because when I worked in the cellar for him, I ultimately got to work with him when he was making Harper Voigt and Shea. Gotcha. And so Harper Voigt is like, uh, I mean, another and i wonder you know maybe that's a, a there's a good segue because i'm curious to you know mm -hmm. one thing that i think is really interesting about all this is you know and knowing your story somewhat yet you like all of this stuff is true you have all this this incredible experience these great connections and but you very consciously when you set out to make to create your own winery you don't make pinot noir you don't make nope. wine from the willamette valley so nope. i would love to hear a little bit about kind of was there a okay. what was the what was the thinking there because you know this says like, I mean, this is the story that I've heard from other people who are like, and now here's my vineyard, you know, here's my winery in, yeah, you know, in Dundee or in Yamhill or whatever, right? So, so what right. took you away from the Willamette Valley? Right. Well, the thing is, because I had such a savvy marketing background, and when you're working and doing marketing and communication at a business like St. Michelle Wine Estates, you are ahead of the curve. You know what's happening before it happens because that's their job to know trends. Mm -hmm. And so um, I learned a lot. And so, but for me, the, it was all instinctual too. And before I moved out here, my boss was from the Loire Valley and I sold the Dresner book in Washington, DC. I got to work with Joe Dresner. He's not, no longer with us, he's since passed, but I got to work with Joe Dresner. He would come down from New York and he was like intimidating as hell. And like, I have some stories. I have some really good stories. like. But, um, but we had Claude Rougeard and Bernard Baldry and all these wines that I, I loved and coveted, all Cab Franc. And um, also the Claude Roche Blanche, like that was my go-to wine party wine. Like if I would go to a dinner party, it's 40% Gamay, 60% Cab Franc. That's what I modeled my Touraine blend on. Um, so I, I love these wines. They were really approachable and easy and delicious and um, when I moved to Oregon and I was looking around, like, I, I didn't understand why, like, I understood why everything was Pinot, but I was like, but there's so much more that could be going on here. Like what it's, it was to me just sort of, I, I, I appreciated what, um, 
what Hilda and Jan what um, Hilda and Earl Jones were doing with Abacella because they certainly made a name for themselves as Spanish varietals. And I'm like, yeah, like there are pockets in this state that would really show some amazing varietals outside of Pinot, but it is what it is. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to just do it. There are plenty of people who are making some Cab Franc, but there's nobody in the state who was focused on Cab Franc. So I decided I was going to be that person. And so um, I just talked to some people. And when I was working with Drew at Shea, he he just made connections for me. He, I knew, I knew it was always going to be Cab Franc. And then for that first vintage, I was like, okay, but I don't want to just make a red one coming out of the gate. I want to do something that's going to say like, bam, hi, I'm, I'm, some, I'm, I'm a nutball over here. I'm doing something way outside the normal, way outside of what's expected. Not only am I not starting with a red Cab Franc, I'm making a white Cab Franc. It's never been done in this country except for in sparkling wine. So like, Boom, let's go. And I made one barrel's worth. Drew um, put me in touch with Chris um, Berg over at Roots Wine Company. And I've known Chris for years. I'm friends with his wife, Hillary, who is the editor of the Oregon Wine Press. And I was like, hey, I know you get some Cab Franc. Can I get like 750 pounds from you? Which is nothing. It's like, it's less than a ton. It's way less. And um, he laughed and he's like, yeah, come along. And so we had a great story that my first vintage, the fruit was from Walla Walla. We got from Lake Colleen Vineyard. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I got, so the McKibben family. So we went up there and we got pulled over by a cop. We had so many like ridiculous stories getting there. Um, and I, you know, I'm totally throwing Chris Berg under the bus for that, but we just had such a blast. And, um, and so I got the 750 pounds from him. I crushed it at when he was at Laurel Ridge put it in a barrel and made literally one barrel's worth of a white Cab Franc. And I was like, this is either going to be really great and a really cool experiment, or it's going to go painfully wrong. And luckily it did not go painfully wrong. And so with my first vintage in 2011, 10 years ago, um, I had 23 cases of a white Cab Franc and I was like, all right, let's do this. And I called up some of my friends like Savannah Ray and, um, and she was at, she was a Somme at Wildwood at the time. I was like, look, I made a white cap front. She said, bring it over. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and she was the first person to really blast it. She had it all over her list. She invited me to do a dinner. Like she was significant in getting me introduced to the Portland market. Very cool. Yeah. And that's how it started. Yeah. And so when you did switch over, I guess probably in 2012 to sourcing in Oregon, Yep. What, what were you, what was out there in terms of Cab Franc and kind of what, how has the landscape for Cabernet Franc in Oregon changed since you started? Uh, I mean, a little bit. Like, it, it, so I knew I was aware of some Cab Franc in the Columbia Gorge region, obviously much more on the Washington side than the Oregon side, but there was some on the, on the, um, on the Oregon side. But I was introduced, so I wrote, I I'm also a writer. And so while I was, um, you know, I, I had to make, I had to earn some cash because I left a real job. <laughs> I left my real job. And so my work was seasonal at Shea. Like I worked for, with him from June to like November, end of November. So, I mean, it's partial year, but, but, um, and then I would help him with bottling, but I needed some other bones on, you know, some other meat on the bones to, to, you know, thrive. And so I did some consulting. I started a consulting firm and did uh, marketing consulting for other wineries. Um, and then I also did um, 
some writing and I wrote a story about winemakers who have a side hustle. And that was back in 2011 when I wrote that story. It was for the Oregon Wine Press. And in doing that, I met um, Herb Quaddy. And I had known him, but that was the first time I really got to spend time like chatting with him. So he was he was the winemaker at Troon at the time. And um, he was just getting his vineyard going, May's Vineyard and 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 so he, we talked about my white cab franc and I was like, look, I want to be exclusively Oregon. And he's like, yeah, like he, we talked about it. And I explained like, I don't want bell pepper. I don't want this. I want this. I want that. Like I was giving him my, my sort of perfect scenario of, of what I want out of this plant. And he's like done. And he told me, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do, um, we're going to time out our our canopy management. We're going to do drip irrigation and we're going to do deficit irrigation. And, and that's all to prevent the methoxypyrazine. So we're not getting a, a upload of, of bell pepper all over this wine or other green characters. It's always there, as you know, Zach, it's part of the plant physiology, but we wanted to make it not primary, like more like tertiary in the wines. It shows up later. It's not the first thing in your face. So, um, we came up with this plan and he literally mastered growing grapes for his clients. And he's really, there were articles written about him for doing that. Um, and he also presented a few years later at the Oregon wine press. I mean, I'm sorry, at the Oregon wine symposium for his work with with uh, winemakers and how he grows for different winemakers based on style. And he presented my wine as a case. And so it's really cool what he's done, what we've come up, we've collaborated. So the wine that I make now is possible because of an amazing grower relationship. So that kind of, that, that got me introduced to Southern Oregon, Applegate Valley specifically. And that was the thing I was going to point out was that, you know, the, those who haven't tried the wines before is, you know, you're really, you're dealing with Applegate Valley and, and Rogue Valley, I think. Do you get anything ever from Umqua as well or? No, no, no. Okay. So just those. Um, yeah. And, and for those, like, I mean, I've driven through Southern Oregon, but, but for people who maybe haven't or aren't super familiar, what, how, what's the, what's it like there, you know, landscape wise, climate wise, is it pretty yeah. different from the Willamette? And I am listening yeah. to this or be filling my glass, the bottles. Yeah, yeah. Right <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it reminds you it's, this is the most Southern part of Oregon and it's like right at the California border. It reminds you more of, if you've been to Napa Valley, it looks a lot, a lot more like Napa Valley than it looks like the Willamette Valley where the Willamette Valley is nice and green and, you know, for there's forests and, um, it's just got a very, you know, when we think of the Northwest, the forests, the rainforest and the, and the evergreen trees, when you go down there, it, it just looks a little more dry. It looks much more like California wine country where it's got the yellow Hills, um, and a lot of rolling Hills and they almost look like little haystacks everywhere. Um, and the, when you think of elevation, the valley, the ro- the rogue valley um, is at nine about nine hundred foot elevation. So by the time we're getting to some of the higher slopes in my in the vineyards, we're talking fourteen, fifteen, sixteen hundred feet elevation. Um, it's just it's a significant difference. Uh, and with that, the impact is that people have this perception that Southern Oregon's way hotter than the Willamette Valley. It's actually not true. It's only a few degrees differences. The difference is there's longer days of heat. We have mo- we have longer growing days, more sunshine um, in Southern Oregon than in the Willamette Valley. Of course, climate change is challenging that to an extent, but um, but 
the cool thing about the Rogue Valley and Applegate Valley is like when you get into some of those slopes uh, where I get working with Herb Quaddy, we did a wine dinner in one of his vineyards in August um, a few years ago. And by the time the sun went down, people were putting on fleece vests. It got really cool. So why is that important? Well, you get the, the, the fully long ripening day of like long days of, of heat. Um, and then it drops off in the evening, gets nice and cool, like pretty cold, like 47 degrees, I think one night. Um, and so we're talking about how acid and sugar balance, you get the ripeness needed to get the sugar accumulation that you want the ripe, the growing season. But then you also get um, the cool evenings that, that really help um, boost the acidity in, in a lot of these varietals. So I want to ask a little bit about just winemaking with Cabernet Franc, because I think that you know, people like me who, you know, talk to a lot of winemakers, we, you know, we, we have a, I mean, I feel like I have a pretty good sense for how a lot of winemakers handle Pinot Noir, Syrah, Cabernet Sauvignon, but, but Cabernet Franc, I'm wondering, you know, what is your broad approach to winemaking with it? And then maybe if you want to talk about any specifics that too. Well, in general, um, after working with some amazing Pinot Noir producers, it's a hell of a lot easier. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't have near the worry. I mean, it's so easy to make Cab Franc, really. Um, with, with Pinot in the Willamette Valley, especially when I was making wine in the cellar, like in 2009, 10, 11, up into 13, um, you know, if it would rain, like the disease pressure and the stress of that and bringing all the fruit in and do you let it hang? Do you da 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 blah, 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 blah. And, um, botrytis, these tight bunches, you know, there's, there's lots that you have to think about with, with Pinot. It's a delicate, it's thin skinned. It's, it's a very sweet little grape, but man, is she beautiful, right? I mean, she's, she's like, you know, Audrey Hepburn, right? But I'm down south making more of a Sophia Loren kind of wine. She's, you know, I don't make, it's, and I'm not even talking about body. I'm just talking about like just the grape. Like um, there's so much more durability with Cab Franc. It's a, it, a lot of the clusters are, they're beautiful. They're, um, it's not, I don't have big fruit clusters like a, like a Zinfandel or I don't know. Um, but it's, they're loose and and what's having loose grapes versus a tight cluster it it leads to aeration right if, if there's winds down there that like if it does get a little damp you know you've got nice natural aeration on the grapes they they don't they don't get moldy i my fruit every year comes in the cleanest fruit in the winery no matter where i am because there's just zero disease pressure mm -hmm. so that's easy right when we sort, it's just kind of like pull a leaf. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty easy. So that part I love, but then there's the technique and understanding what we're making. So um, the, just my research and my years of, of working strictly with Cab Franc is that it's got an, and, and we'll talk about Oregon Cab Franc, it's got a thick skin. And so it's not enough to, I would never whole cluster, first of all, for this. It would just be to me, unpalatable. Um, so I always destem. So that means we're getting full berries where we're, the grapes are going through a destemmer that gently roll the grapes through like a little basket and the berries come out without the stems. And then the berries roll down a sliding table into our fermenters. And it's a very gentle process. And 
Um, when I do that, I apply a pressure. So I'm getting a light berry crush. What does that mean? Is it smashing the grapes? Not, no, what it's doing is as it's coming out of the, uh, December, I'm getting like a little, almost like a pinprick, just a light berry crush. Um, so that it doesn't macerate and get meshy and, you know, messy. It just, but when it falls into the fermenter, um, it, it does help with the softening of the grape as we, want to extract color and everything else um, um, during the fermentation. So that's a very important thing, what I do with, with uh, my Cab Franc. I do I de-stem and I do a light berry crush. Mm -hmm. And then as far as maceration times go, are you, I know, you, you, I mean, it makes sense with, with thick skins that maybe you're not going for a super long maceration, but, you know, um, what, is the, what is that process um, from sort of once fermentation starts look like? Well, so before fermentation starts, I usually do about a four to five day cold soak. Oh, okay. Um, and so I like to start my fermentations cold. I have never, ever, ever in the history of making my wine have ever had a heat spike. I've never had my fermentations go above 76, 77 degrees. Um, and that's very intentional. Um, so I use dry ice and I, as, as the berries are going into the fermenter, I apply dry ice into the fermenter and different layers. So it looks like witch's brew, you know, it's very witchy. Um, but it keeps everything nice and cool. And then we tuck it away, um, in part of the cellar that maintains a cool temperature. Um, and we, we get the, we get and maintain the grapes. The grapes come in the winery cold, like I cold refrigerate them before we, we start processing. Um, and then dry ice, it sits for four to five days. And then, um, I do inoculate and I use non-GMO because I'm in a shared space. So there's no guarantee, you know, it, it's, it's funny. People are like, do you do native wild ferments? I'm like, nobody does in a shared space. It's no longer native or wild. So I would rather as a winemaker manage what's going to complete that fermentation. Because if you let just anything, I mean, you can have a stuck fermentation. And let me tell you, that is nothing that you ever want to go through. It is a nightmare having a stuck fermentation. You don't just like add yeast and it starts over again. Like you have to do this whole monitoring for 48 hours. It's stupid. So that's not going to be on my list. I have a, I have a two-year-old. I don't have time to have things go wrong. So yes, that, I feel that for sure. Yeah. So we, so that's kind of why I, I use a non-GMO, um, yeast. And then, um, I also studied holistic nutrition and I understand the physiology of yeasts in a, in a fermentation. Most winery, just like most human beings have nutrient deficiency. Guess what? So do grape, the grapes slash, yeah, grapes. So coming into the the seller, I don't care how perfect you manage your vineyard, biodynamic, organic, sustainable, whatever. We, I believe in all those practices to be diligent. But at the end of the day, all grapes have some nutrient deficiencies. What does that mean? Well, if yeasts are not getting what they need to convert alcohol to sugar in a way that's not stressed, then you are going to have potential problems. And it's just stuff you can mitigate, but why not prevent the problem? I believe I studied holistic medicine and Chinese medicine, traditional Chinese medicine. I'm all about preventative medicine. So what I'm doing is not like doing additives. I want to be very clear. 
I'm using um, nutrients that are um, available to boost what is in the grapes so that the yeasts can go like their mitochondria and the whole cellular process of the yeast as they're going through the Krebs cycle and everything else that's part of fermentation, that it's all healthy and it's not going to um, either have stress on the yeast and or create byproducts. Yeah. So at the end of the day, I'm trying to prevent byproducts because then I don't have to clean it up in the end. I'm preventing and I think it. That's a, I think that's a really fat, uh, important thing to take note of here too, is that like, um, like I think in some, and sometimes I'm as guilty of this as anyone of saying like, you know, you just t grapes plus yeast equals wine and like, or grapes plus yeast and time, I guess, or whatever equals wine. And there's a certain way in which that is kind of true, but also that like, um, people, if you just put grapes in a, you know, you crush grapes and put them in a, in a container, the mm. thing that, that you will get is going to be not pleasant, almost certainly. <laughs> Maybe you'll get very lucky, but um, there was a great article, got, I mean, great in a terrible way. Someone, <laughs> someone a few years ago wrote a piece about how like, basically they're like, I tried to make natural wine and I just like, I bought some grapes and I, I, my boyfriend and I like got in the bin and stepped on them or whatever. We put them in some sort of thing. And then like, we just left it. And it was like, they're like but it was so bad. I was like, really? Like if it was, if it was exactly that simple, then yeah. you know, we'd have a different uh, industry. But um, yeah, I think that's, that's a, a good point that I sometimes am guilty of forgetting too, which is like, you know, there, there is a lot that can go wrong and that the winemaker is keeping an eye out on. And even if sometimes that's all preventative and not curative, that's, mm -hmm. yeah, that makes total sense. I, I want to ask real quick before we get, um, or just in the moment while I'm asking, obviously we've talked to, kind of from variety standpoint, just about mm -hmm. Cabernet Franc, but obviously you work with a few other varieties as well. What, mm -hmm. Just for people who aren't familiar, what else do you make and, and, and you know, what, what's currently available? Yeah, I, I make um, a Willamette Valley Gamay Noir, uh, and I use that Gamay for uh, th that blend that I was mentioning earlier. It's my Touraine blend, which is like um, paying homage to Clos Roche Blanche, which is a beautiful wine from the Touraine region in the Loire Valley. So it's uh, I, I make this wine that's 40% Gamay, and it's sourced from Jeff Havland, Havland Vineyard. I went to school with Jeff. And his cuttings are from the original Seven Springs Vineyard. So it's the oldest planting of Gamay Noir in America. Um, so that's cool. So I, the cuttings are from, from Seven Springs. And, um, and I, then I started off just using it for the blend, but I got a little extra. And so I make just a nominal amount of straight up Gamay. Um, and it's, I, I mean, I don't know if it's more like a Beaujolais, like a Cru Beaujolais versus a Loire Gamay. I kind of feel like it's more like a Cru Beaujolais personally. Um, I never do whole cluster and I never do carbonic. And it's only, be not that I don't like that philosophy, but it has everything to do with the vineyard and the site I'm working with. The skin, once again, are way too thick. They're from the Willamette Valley. It's from Van Duzer Corridor. But um, it's just a, it's a weird site and his best, um, blocks are the gamay, which is funny, and I get most of them. So, yeah, I um, I I did make a little bit of uh, each year, a little since 2017, a little bit of gamay, and then in 17, I also made my first sparkling rosé of gamay, my first sparkling wine ever. 
Ooh, I didn't know this. I'm disgorging it on something already. Yeah, I'm disgorging it on Saturday. Oh, so wow. it's basically we did. Um, it's always on brand here, folks. Always on brand. That's right. You're hearing it first on Discouraged. <laughs> um, it was I I bottle fermented it, so it's it's a it's an ancestral method, um, but I'm disgorging. Okay. I'm disgorging. Good. You know. Yeah. That's what we like yeah. around here. Yeah. And then, and then um, I make a little Malbec and a little Sauvignon Blanc. And that's it. So the rest is Cab Franc. But I do rosé of Cab Franc, white Cab Franc, uh, the Cab Franc Gamay blend, my flagship Cab Franc, and then I do a reserve and a Grand Reserve Cab Franc. And as far as those, um, you know, the reserve and the Grand Reserve, how do you, what is the differentiation there? Is it barrel selection? Is it uh, yep. vineyard site, whatever? And, and aging. So it's, um, I use punchins for the reserves and then i go from punchin to single vineyard single uh barrels as they age so they spend the first eight to ten months in punchin and then i transfer because i'm moving stuff around so i have those barrels again for the next vintage um then i um go to regular 600 gallon um barrels the reserve the clovergeard is about 15 to 18 months in oak and then I bottle age it for at least nine months before releasing. And then the Grand Reserve is about 25 to 26 months in barrel. And then I bottle age like a year or two. That is what I am drinking. And I got to tell you, like, I've had a lot of Leah's wines over the years and, um, and had a couple of these. I don't know that, I don't know if you've opened a 13 recently, but it's really in a beautiful place. And like, you get that distinctive to me Cabernet Franc kind of like like I, I agree it's not bell peppery but there is a little bit of like a sagey tarragon mm-hmm. quality to it it's very violet okay. like there's a lot of floral tone um but it's very silky which I think is definitely something that comes with that that aging like it sometimes Cabernet Franc in its youth is I also really like it but it's kind of like more assertive and a little like yeah yeah and and just kind of like and kind of um yeah, it's just like, it isn't, this is very, this feels very uh, smooth. And sometimes that's a negative in wine to me. But in this mm-hmm. case, I think it's very, it still has a lot of, um, there's a lot going on with it. Smooth isn't just kind of covering up. It's not just featureless, I guess, is what right. I'm saying. Well, it's Cabernet Sauvignon softens with time. It softens, it literally softens. And so the greatest Borlase wines from from Bordeaux have a larger component of Cab Franc than anything else. The reason why they use Cab Franc in Bordeaux blends and Meritage blends is for ageability. And that's because unlike um, Petit Bordeaux, Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, they don't have the same um, composition of acidity and tannin structure that, that, um, that play into ageability. So because of the natural acidity of Cab Franc, and the tannin structure. It is the ultimate grape. That's why I call it the ultimate Cinderella grape. You know, like the other stepsisters, Cab, Fran- Cab Sauv and Merlot. Um, they're, they get all the attention, but the real bell of the ball is Cab Franc always. Yeah. Sure. Well, since I had a screaming toddler for a moment there in the background, I'm sure some of you heard. <laughs> I did too. Talk about the other thing that I wanted to talk about a little bit, which is, you know, obviously, as you mentioned before, you have a, a adorable two-year-old son. I have a arguably adorable almost two-year-old son. 
Um, uh, I know that um, being a parent, especially being a parent at this time during COVID has been really challenging as far as also then operating a business which doesn't really conform to uh, <laughs> like regular hours and, you know, taking time off always. Right. So, I mean, feel free to share whatever you feel like, but I'm, I'm just curious <laughs> first and foremost, that my, my first question, I guess, is like, in your heart, do you hope that your son follows your foot in your footsteps? No. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> we want him to be a polo player. <laughs> I'm kidding. My husband and I met at a polo match, not because we're avid polo fans, but we were working. <laughs> we were pouring wine at a polo match and that's where we met. Um, no, no, no. I, I have no, if he wants to, that's cool. But like, I'm, I mean, here's how we're raising him right now. We're doing everything baby led, whatever he shows with preferences, like we're, we're following that lead. So like we talked about this earlier, Zach, about potty training, like yeah. he's at that I'm stage. In, where he's, in case any of you are curious. <laughs> We've been talking about the potty training. Yeah. He, um, he's curious about it and he talks about it and like, we're letting him go at his pace. Like, I don't want to put, I'm not worried about doing it right or wrong. There's so much pressure on parents. Like if he's not peeing and pooping by four, you've screwed it up. Like, no, like it's, it's, it would get a little too precious. And I just, I feel like we do so much with our kids about what is convenient for us. Mm. And so, um, you know, this might sound like this might come from a place of privilege too. So I'm, I'm very fully aware of my circumstances. Like we're having, I'm not, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. We're having a really hard time because he's two. Like if I had a eight-year-old, like an eight-year-old can entertain themselves or do something. You don't have to like watch them all the time because they're going to like pull hot coffee on their head or like run into a wall or like whatever. I mean, our house is childproof, but that doesn't mean crap. I mean, you know, any of you who are parents, like a two-year-old can, is going to do what a two-year-old's going to do. And you have to watch them like this, like a hawk. And so it makes it so much harder having a two-year-old. And I want to blame, I never want to feel like I'm blaming my child for making my life hard, but for the <laughs> kind of work that I do and having lost our childcare in the middle of harvest, like it was a nightmare. And my husband and I had to get really clever about how to keep the wine business going and also making sure our priority, which is our son, is happy and healthy and taken care of. So uh, it, it's, it's hard. And as far as wanting him to step into it, I mean, he already loves to, I mean, I can't post these pictures on Instagram, but he pours champagne bottles beautifully. Like it's so fun oh. to watch him. You should see him pour champagne. He like is so delicate with it. Oh my goodness. He I have to... tried to let my son do this, but now I might have to give him a chance. I feel yeah. bad. Yeah. Yeah. Like my son likes to drink champagne, which I also can't post pictures of on Instagram, but I know like it, it's funny, you know, I grew up with an Italian mom and I literally had been drinking wine since I was five years old, but like my grandma, only like when we would have weddings, funerals and all those kinds of things where the grandma, my, my nonna would put, um, cause everybody made wine in the family. Like they'd put wine in the glass for the kids with Italian soda on top. Mm -hmm. And that's just what they did. And so, and then by the time I was in high school, Sunday dinners were a big deal. And we always were together for dinner on Sundays and we drank wine and it wasn't a big deal. So that they kind of ruined it for me because I, they took away all the mystery. So I was never a binge drinker or a partier in high school or college because it wasn't a big deal. I was like, I can have wine, beer, whatever, when I want. Like, it's not a big deal. 
Yeah, it's funny that, that you say that because that was maybe not quite to that extent, but it was very true for me in my household growing up too, that, that mm-hmm. especially with my dad, if I wanted to try what he, you know, his beer, his wine, his mm-hmm. scotch, that was a memorable, I will not do, I would not do, I think I tried his scotch when I was 10 or 11 and it was like, yeah. not going to do that again for yeah. quite some time. Uh, <laughs> and, and I certainly, I would say that I, I never was a big partier either in that regard. Is that, you know, um, I don't know if that's, I don't know if I would say that that correlation is is a proof of anything, but um, but I do wonder, you know, um, do you? I don't I don't know how to say this. Maybe it's still early enough that who knows. But like, I feel like sometimes, um, like it's important to me that my son has a healthy relationship with alcohol. You know, that yeah. it's obviously my profession. Yeah, something that my Caitlin and I really enjoy. Um, and, but I also, I, so I want it to be, I want him to, to, to recognize its power, but also mm-hmm. not to be afraid of it right. and, and to hopefully enjoy it if he, if he chooses to. And, and so have you, I mean, I, we hit Saul's first experience with, I mean, he's a very lucky kid in a lot of ways. Talk about privilege. <laughs> first experience with alcohol was uh, some partially fermented Pinot Gris and Alsace when we were traveling there. And one yeah. of his very first wines that he tasted was Clos Saint Un, which is one of the finest right. wines on the planet. Yeah, <laughs> Andrea, I love it. Yep, uh, that was my son. Uh, I will. His first, his first food was foie gras. So, um, you know, that's how like we kitty roll. Kitty oysters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> likes it. We don't have them all that often, but but he does enjoy them. Uh, and uh, and so, I mean, do you have? Have you? Does ever have? Uh, wine do you introduce it to him or are you waiting we're we're pretty like we're pretty all right so i also have a holistic nutrition background so there's that that kind of directs me as well and you know it's one thing if i put it on my finger and you know give him a taste like we'll yeah. let him have a little like a very nominal taste but it's 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 toxic to a child you know what i mean it, it, it's just it's there in Chinese medicine, it's heat and, and it causes inflammation. So, you know, we, he's only, he's two now. He's still pretty little. We, um, yeah, we'll give him like, he, like Asa does the finger thing where he'll dip his finger in and let him taste it. He's not that interested in like, he's, he prefers honestly to smell it. Okay. He really, he has a great nose. He likes to smell things. He loves smelling flowers. I mean, he sees mommy when I go grocery shopping, I'm always smelling fruits and vegetables. And, and so he sees me do kids mimic. They want to do what you're doing. And it's not that the reason why he wants to eat oysters is not because we're pretentious buffoon parents that, you know, want to have special kids. Like <laughs> that's what you we like eat. eat oysters, yeah. Yeah. And I'm never going to be the mom that's going to make five meals because my kids don't eat what we eat. It's like, my mom's Italian. If you don't eat what's on the table, you don't eat, you know? Right. So we don't mess around. Like if we're having oysters, you're going uh, to, now when he's little, we don't give him raw oysters. We, um, we get the larger oysters and we put them on the grill. Sure. My husband and I will still eat the raw oysters, but like the Kumamoto's and the Knee Tarts Bay and all the good stuff, um, Cook's Island. But for him, like in the summertime, like we'll get the large oysters, we put them on the grill and he just slurps them back. And we have our whole backyard is oyster shells. <laughs> going to save them for our bocce court. I think you're going to say you're, you're creating a great vineyard in a few million years. <laughs> That's right. 
it's such a it's such a uh a, a manipulative uh he has a long-term theme. plan though. marine marine yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> some, yeah. some, some far future geologist is gonna be very confused like, yeah totally uh that's cool i i want to before i mean we're kind of coming a little bit to the end of things here first of all obviously if any of uh, you all have questions or comments or things you want uh us to touch on uh, you feel free to unmute or mention in chat. I wanted to just say a couple of the, or ask a couple of things about um, what you're doing as far as wine goes. Um, with the sparkling wine, is that something you see becoming a bigger part of what you do going forward? Or is this just kind of, I wanted to try it out? Okay. I don't want to disappoint you, Mr. Um, Beautiful Disgorge t-shirt. I love drinking wine. I love champagne. My husband sells, he works for Mitchell Wine Group. He gets, we get such beautiful champagne and I love it. It's the only thing I drank when I was pregnant. Like I didn't drink at all. I had no taste for it and I had no interest in wine when I was pregnant, but I could drink champagne. I could drink, drink champagne all day. Yeah. Um, and, and specifically champagne. And then there's other sparkling wines that I will put in the same um, bracket. But um, ugh, I love to drink it. I hate making it. Hmm. Sorry. It's a lot of work. It's a pain in the ass. I'm sorry. I just said it. I did. It's okay. Unfiltered right there. I don't curse that much, but right there, boom. I, it's a pain. I, I don't enjoy making it. I wish I did. I mean... It's just, I think if I didn't have so much stress and other things going on, I think I could sit back and enjoy it. I'm doing everything by myself. If I had an employee who I could go make them go do it for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's what interns are for, Leah. I know, I know, I know. I, I do have someone who helps me out a little bit. Um, she and I worked together at Shea a few years ago, but she's a chef and she's on the coast now. She has a, a company where she does, um, she cooks for people when they come and stay on the, she's a private chef. Um, but I don't know, never say never. I'll just say that. I just, I'm not loving it. It's, it's a headache and I'm having to work out my dosage right now. And I'm like, ah, if you do it all the time and you're trained in it, I can see where you can geek out on it. Um, I think, well, let me see how this one goes. Let me see how it goes after I disgorge it and just dosage and put it away for a little bit and we'll see how it goes. Maybe. Um, I wanted to, uh, I, Kat, we'll get to your question in one second. I have, I have one other quick question that I wanted to, to ask, which is just because I feel like I should know the answer to this, but I don't. What is the, which of your wines is the one you make the most of, just in terms of uh, quantity? It, it teeters between, for the white wine, it's the Sauve Blanc. And then for the red, it's the flagship Cap Franc and the Touraine. Okay. They're both about the same amount. And do you want to try and do you see Kat's question in chat? I feel like you could uh, hmm. offer your thoughts there. Chat. Oh, I'm sorry. I like I should be doing this, right? I'm like. Oh, you just you didn't miss. Well, I guess we did miss a question from Andrea too, which I yeah. somehow. Andrea, but I answered. I think now no whole cluster, and that's just it's really because of the fruit that I'm working with. If I had thinner skinned, I would do a whole cluster, but I don't think whole cluster goes very well with thick skin grapes, personally. Um, and then Kat. My master's house, Oregon Pinot Noir. I love to nurse again. Well, I'm drinking an Oregon Pinot Noir right now. That's so funny. 
It's Cody Wright, Purple Hands, his Shea oh, yeah. Vineyard. It's his Shea Vineyard because I haven't tasted it yet. I worked at Shea and I was like, I got to taste your Shea Vineyard. So he gave me this bottle. I didn't even have to buy it. He gave it to me. But I like to support my friends. I'm not saying I want free wine. Um, I'd love to introduce you to your Cab Franc. What's the best entry level? Oh, definitely the, the Oregon Cab Franc. It's, it's, um, it's bright. It's, it's light. It's fruity. It's, it's released right away. It's like eight months in barrel and then I release it. So I just wrapped up 18. I still have some 2018 available left. It got some super duper scores from Paul Greggett and that kind of helped move it along, um, and a mm -hmm. editor's choice. And you ship to uh, New York, right? I do. Oh, I have yep. a distributor in New York too. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So you could actually can't probably find it at at a wine shop in New all York kinds City. of cool wine shops in Brooklyn and yep, yep. We can if you want, Kat. I can get I can get specifics from the. I'm sure she can pull where it's currently in stock, um, and I can pass those along. And yes, excellent. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And Amy, to your question about where in the Seattle area to get the the Blanc de Cabernet Franc, um, similar probably answer. Obviously, it's in distribution here. Yeah. We can we can find you. Uh, I can connect with Leah. She can give me some ideas because um, we'll, we'll, we'll. I'm still with American Northwest, so you can. Yeah. I think there's a lot of wine shops that, but I don't know about. Yeah, you need to, we need to loop in with them. I don't know what's current. We're out of the 2018. It's been out for a while, and I'm not releasing 19 until May. So people yeah. got to wait. I'm so sorry, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> but well, there might be some 18 in, in, in circulations up there. There's definitely some 18 in my cellar. So Perfect. I'll tell you that much. And some older, I think, too. I'll just I've, come to your house and grab a bottle that way. Yeah, do it. <laughs> Do it. I really, it bums me out that I, like, this is one of those things that, among the many things that sucks about this time right now during pandemic, it's like, I mean, fortunately, my wife really likes wine, so we can share wine, but it's like, I, there are a few things I miss more than, like, being able to open four or five bottles and have people over, because, like, I know, even the wines I love, I can't, like, I mean, my wife and I can, at, at our best, go through, you know, two bottles of wine, I mean, yeah. we've done before but like we as mentioned have a child and the next it's day hard. Is no good. and yeah. frankly at this point like my tolerance is sadly much lower than it used to or whatever it's much lower than it used to be so yep. even when my son is with the grandparents it's like we have a bottle and a half of wine and it's like the next day I'm a mess um, yeah. so, you know, um <laughs> one day this pandemic will be over or at least greatly mitigated and maybe we can Share some bottles of wine because it would be a bummer not to. But um, I think that's what uh, is ostensibly going to happen. I think it's going to be a big freaking uncorked like parade. Yeah, yeah, we'll be <laughs> drinking in the streets. Um, does anyone else have any other questions or comments? I know I'm sure Leah has much more of her family to go spend time with, and and I have to go start dinner, uh, which is my perpetual state of affairs around here. Um, <laughs> but obviously, if you have any further questions um, and. Kat and Amy, I will check back with you about um, details yeah. on where it will be available. Uh, otherwise, Lisa, thank you so much for your time. I, I miss getting to see you in person. I know. Um, we'll get to do it again, hopefully before too long. Um, but thank We're you so hoping much this summer. We're hoping this summer they're saying things should be drastically better. Yeah, that would be great. And yeah. uh, I'm sure you'll be up in Seattle uh, doing a little bit of market support. We will be happy to see you and I mean, I gotta say, it would make my it would make my heart warm to get our sons together and give them a chance. I know. To uh, 
gonna happen. I saw you briefly, uh, but I guess I don't think. Yeah, Saul was with us when we were in Portland, but you guys had childcare, I think, and Ivor was with was at home, I think, if I remember correct. I don't actually remember. It, everything is a blur pre-pandemic. I, I don't even know. I know. I know. <laughs> I just remember. I do remember though. I will say this is just indulgence, so pardon me, but. Uh, I do remember meeting you for the first time, which was you were up doing market support with American Northwest. You came yep. with my rep when I was a buyer at Home Remedy. And yep. I just remember tasting the wine and being like, and just being excited because as much as I love Oregon Pinot Noir and Willamette Valley wines, it was so cool to see something from Oregon that wasn't that, you know, that, that there was someone who was like, you know, I don't buy into the idea that all that Oregon can be is Pinot Noir. And again, love Pinot Noir, love Oregon Pinot Noir, so I'm not on any of it. But it was very right. cool and that made me very excited. And it was fun to be able to share that with, you know, it was, you know, your wines were staples on my list at Value Lounge for years. I mean, never left the list. You're, so. You've been a huge support and I'm so grateful. I mean, if it wasn't for you and people like you, then I, I wouldn't be able to be doing what I'm doing. I mean, it's one thing if you make something, but if you, if you can't make something that translates to people that they want to share it with their customers, like you're in trouble. So it's like, <laughs> I feel very lucky that, that you and, and so many of your colleagues in Seattle, like Seattle's great. It's my second home. My aunt and uncle, and my cousins are all in Issaquah and Sammamish. And so I love getting up there and it's been hard to not come up to Seattle. I, I miss it a lot. Well, we will have you before too long before 2021 is out for sure. 